1: Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. I am Tyler Donahue. We are just about at game number 11 of this 2023 season. If you can believe it, I can feel it. I think we can all, those of us who cover the team, probably those of you who follow the team, certainly those in that lash building, you can feel that we are in the late stages of a season. You can feel that we're in the late stages of what has been a minute-by-minute very concerted effort since that first week of August. So we're all curious how Penn State is going to respond to picking up that second loss that knocks them out of of contention for those postseason goals that they've had since last January. And we're going to see how they regroup and rally offensively after James Franklin made a really stunning move because it happened in the season, the firing of Mike Yursich in the aftermath of that Michigan loss. We're going to dive into what we saw on the practice field, what we've been hearing from Penn State coaches and players over the course of this week in just a bit with Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallen. But we begin this episode because Tuesday was so heavy focused on recruiting. We brought Tyler Calvaruso in. We broke down the commitment of Beckham Kritza, uh, the quarterback out of Colorado who joined the 2025 class on Tuesday evening. And we covered a lot of recruiting territory. So Tuesday was that. If you missed the episode, hop back to that. We're going to look at the Rutgers Scarlet Knights to open the show because that is the opponent here the final one in beaver stadium for the 2023 schedule and help break down this six and four squad we talked to bobby darren who's been joining us on an annual basis that's going to get blown up now bobby as we venture in a new big 10 era there's no more big 10 east that means we're not exchanging yes. trips between state college and Piscataway on an annual basis anymore yeah. but happy to get you back here for the final divisional matchup between these two teams
0: Appreciate it. Yeah, it should, uh, you know, uh, for Rutgers, I don't know if it comes at the best time of the year with, with injuries and the way things are going, but um, I know it's a game that, that if their fan base would would win, it would make the season.
1: Well, obviously, we, we they, they've already kind of made their season at this point. Even if they were to lose out and they've got Maryland next week, uh, that's still six wins. That's an improvement. That qualifies you for a bowl. And so I, I kind of do wonder uh, if, if their season peaked, uh, at six and two with a nine and seven, nine to seven lead over Ohio state. Impist that away a couple weeks ago as Penn yeah. state was getting ready to play Maryland. That was all happening in New Jersey. Uh, Bobby, they have responded to that by Ohio state being Ohio state in the second half and, and pulling away for the victory and then going to Iowa city last week. And we've all seen Iowa's offense on display. Well, they were able to get 22 on the board against Rutgers and Rutgers put a goose egg up against the Hawkeyes, a shutout loss. For the Scarlet Knights. So suddenly now they're at six and four. Again, six wins is a big deal for year four under Greg Ciano. But how would you categorize the trajectory of this program as they make
0: their way to take on Penn State? Not only, uh, you know, they have six wins, but in, in the losses, you know, they're competitive. They, you know, they've never played Ohio State competitively, and it's 9-7 in the third quarter. They're driving. If, if Gavin Wimsa doesn't throw a pick six down in, in the red zone, then, you know, who knows? You know, you know it could be a lot closer than what it was, but they can't afford to make those mistakes. And they hung around against Michigan, and, and you know, the, the final score didn't indicate it, but another pick six did them in. So, um You know, to go out and play like that against Iowa, they played very conservatively, offensively, was just hoping that their defense could do something to help them win the game. Um, You know, didn't really air the ball out too much. And and it was a real vanilla offense that Kirk Sirocco ran. But I think you're seeing this team be competitive against teams that – they used to blow them out of the water. So um, it's it's definitely an improvement in that area. And it has been a success, uh, you know, six and four, even if they lose the last two, it's still a bowl game. It's the first time they've been bowl eligible in a season since 2014. So a lot of first, and you're seeing the progression under Greg Shiano, what he talked about when he took over the team in in December of 2019. So already a success, but they have some injuries mounting and and coming off of that poor offensive performance against Iowa, you know, heading into Penn State. They had trouble with the noise. Time. They had six false starts um, on offense, and the, the noise City? just got them. Yes.
1: And, okay, Bobby, we've lived that scenario before. A young man named Taquan Roberson lived a nightmare in uh-huh. Iowa City. The, the backup quarterback beyond Sean Clifford a couple of years ago. I don't need to remind our listeners, but we know full well what it's like to watch one of those games.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it really got the better of it. And it happened at it, it really in opportune times. It, it kind of stalled what little momentum they had on offense at the time. So they're going to face a similar situation. They've been working with uh, the crowd noise all week. Yesterday, Greg Ciano said it sounded like he had a jet engine in his ear for two hours. So um, they're working on it. But, you know, it's the team can't afford to make those mistakes. They're not at that level yet where they can compensate for for miscues of that nature. You referenced that 2014 season, the
1: last time that they got to six wins in the regular season, finished above 500 actually at eight and four that year. It was their first year in the conference. Kyle Flug was their coach at the time. He was coaching Greg Shiano's roster for the most part still. And you look at the opening game of that season in Piscataway, in the, at least in the Big Ten calendar for them, it was James Franklin's conference debut as well. He brought Penn State uh, over to New Jersey. It was a 13-10, to 10, a harrowing win uh, for the Nittany Lions with Christian Hackenberg as a sophomore quarterback at the time. And from this point on, Rutgers is, you know, they, they weren't able to build off that eight-win season. They, they certainly were depleted. They've gone through a couple coaching staffs. Now they're trying to build it back up. And we have not seen them challenge the Nittany Lions, even close to what what occurred out there in 2014. Uh, The closest margin of victory for Penn State since then is 13 points. I believe Rutgers has struggled to even reach double digits on essentially every occasion these teams have gotten together. So when you look at the significance of this matchup for Rutgers, we know what it means for Penn State. They need to handle their business. They need to bounce back and they need to look authoritative doing it to get some of that stink off them from last week. What does this neat game need to look like for Rutgers, for them to feel good about it?
0: You know, again, uh, they've been competitive against those big 10 teams and Greg channel keeps saying, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. You're getting closer, getting closer. Um, you know, just just being out there and, and they'll tell you there's no moral victories. But when you look at it, come on, everything would have to go right for Rutgers to upset uh, Penn State this week with, like I said, with, with injury starting to mount and, you know, the offense sputtering. It, it's really going to be tough. But just to show that, that they can they can stay on the same field with this team. I think it shows the uh, progression that, that Greg Ciano is, is you know, Taking this team through, and you know, there's it, never been a season like you said. You know, that first year Rutgers played Penn State close, and since then, you know, it's been a struggle just to score points. So, um, to keep that a close competitive game would show a step in the right direction. But the problem they have at this team is, you know, they, they don't have the depth of the of the Penn States, the Michigans, the Ohio State. So by the end of the season, when injuries start to mount up, you know, you don't have the same type of players filling in. So, uh, you know, Kyle Manungai is, is, is powered the offense, 942 yards leading the big 10 in rushing. And it was questionable coming into last week's game, went down in the third quarter, didn't come back. You know, I expect him to go, but how effective is he going to be because he's been a workhorse all year is getting you know banged up running a lot of plays up the middle, really getting tough yards. So uh, you take him out of the equation and, and it changes the offense and, and, you know, they're just not at the point where they can plug different players in and, and do that. So it, the game doesn't really come at an opportune time for Rutgers to play Penn State. But, you know, uh, Greg Channel is going to try to get this team motivated and they haven't quit all season. So I'm interested to see how they respond. But, um, you know, I, I I wouldn't lean on an upset this week bobby you know full well i spent three seasons uh, under that roof uh, under greg
1: shiano's yeah. uh, direction in his first go-round out there 06 through 08 and i saw mm. what it looked like when when Rutgers found a spark it involved a, a tough hard-nosed runner and it involved some significantly impressive defense ba- with a lot of three stars contributing that's what they've gotten this year but one thing that they've been missing it seems when it matters most five games in a row under 50% completion percentage for quarterback Gavin Wimsatt. And This is one of the top prospects that this program has brought in uh, at mm-hmm. any point in program history, and it just seems like in a moment where they got Kirk Scirocco, who's in his second go-round at Rutgers as well, and it feels like they've got the quarterback, a goose egg on the board at Iowa, and they've been, able, they, they've been able to lean on the ground game. They've had the defense in place, but they have not had the aerial attack, and it doesn't seem like they're going to be in a good position to discover that suddenly against this defense. On the road in Beaver Stadium,
0: and you know, Ty, they, they really don't rely on the pass, they, they want to run the ball. You know, against Iowa last week, they had the, the two uh situations where they're deepest within Iowa territory it was a 43 and the 47, and it was third and seven and third and 12, and they ran the ball just to you know, up the middle. Let's play the field position game. They didn't want to put the ball in, in Gavin Wimsett's hands then. And then they ask him, you know, down 15 nothing. hey, bring us back by throwing the ball every time when I was sitting back and playing the pass. So it really wasn't fair to him. But they don't have a lot of trust in him, and you could see that. They just want to run the football, play defense, play field position. So he doesn't have the best wide receiving core out there, so it's not totally on him. But you'd like to see more development. It's year number three. He came in as a, as a high school senior, um, the same way Quinn Ewers did. Um didn't really play that year, you know, started getting work last year. And, and you've seen progressions this year, but you'd like to see a little bit more. And, and, and you know, the way they play, it really isn't conducive to opening it up and throwing the ball all day long and, and for him to get, you know, that experience. And then, you know, hey. All of a sudden you're down so much. Hey, kid, can you rescue us by just chucking it up all day? I think it's an unfair situation to put him in, but you would like to see more progress. But, you know, like I said, he doesn't have the most prolific wide receiving core in the country. So um, sometimes he's just trying to chuck it up and hopefully something happens. And You know, guys are, are covered and, you know, and the old line has been better, but it's not a, a complete stalwart. And he is at 400-plus rushing yards. He can make some things happen. He can move the
1: chains a bit. Uh, so so keep that in mind against this Penn State defense, which the edge the edge rush has been really impressive when they gotten a chance to tee off on guys in passing situations. Um, defense special teams, th- those are the calling cards for Greg Shiano on an annual basis, as we said. Although they haven't had the quarterback play, the passing attack, the ground game's been there, and the defense has. I know they lost an integral part of that defensive unit recently. Talk us through where that unit is coming to Happy Valley, because when you say shaky wide receiver play, a younger quarterback whose confidence is shaken, an offensive coordinator who maybe people are questioning, yeah, we're living that right now in Happy Valley as well. So what is the Rutgers
0: defense gonna bring to the table? You know, Rutgers plays hard defense. They play good defense at all three levels. There's not one guy that, you know, you're really relying on it to, to carry this defense or two guys. It's kind of a combination of, of, of a swarming type of defense, plays very aggressive. Um, they, they have good cornerback play. Max Melton has developed in one of better corners in the Big Ten. Um, you know Robert Longerbeams having a good year, at cornerback. But again, he's he's another guy that w- was shaken up last game. So they kind of do well at all three levels. Uh, not one really superseding the other. Has some good linebacker play. Uh, Tyreen Powell is the leading tackler. He hurt his hand a few weeks ago, uh, out for the season with injury. But they have Muhammad Toure backing up. Deion Jennings is playing well. So they've really uh, you know they've kind of compensated there, and it's not been too big of a loss. But um, it's a defense that really relies on everyone doing their part because it's not like they're gonna have one guy you know getting all these sacks or tackles it's it's kind of a cohesive unit and and um you know that's been the that's been their calling card this year you know ranked number 13th in the country uh you know through through uh 10 games it's 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 been a it's been a good season for them
1: look at scoring defense, scoring offense right now. Rutgers putting points on the board. They rank fifth among all Big Ten teams, 24.1 points per game in points allowed. They rank sixth in the conference, 18.3 points per game. Let's get into this matchup now. In terms of how you see this one unfolding in front of us come kickoff noon on Saturday, what are we going to see in this matchup, and what's your score prediction?
0: Uh, You know, similar to what we talked about, um, I think the defense will let them hang around early on and, and, and keep it close through the first half. But I, I just think the talent gap is too wide for them to sustain that through four quarters. Now, if Rutgers is going to be in it in the in the fourth quarter, you're going to need some turnovers, some special teams play. Uh, you're going to need the offense to do something. It's not just going to be, hey, let's run the ball all day, and hopefully that – that, uh, you know, is enough. But I think it's at the point in the season where this one just favors Penn State heavily. I think Rutgers will hang around because of its defense. But by the end, I'm looking at like a 34-13 uh, Penn State win. It's just there's just too much going on. And I, I feel like, you know, they have something to prove this weekend. And and with guys getting banged up, it's just it's, it's not the right time for Rutgers to play Penn State at Penn State.
1: Bobby Darren is the Rutgers insider at twenty four seven sports Network. Uh, thanks for the perspective from Piscataway. And, hey, and I haven't said this to you. We've been doing this on an annual basis. Enjoy your bull trip wherever that may take yeah. you even if it's just it's the York City. In New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just, uh, just across the bridge. Hey, we'll catch up with you, man. Thank you for the time. All right. thanks, Todd. Let's get into some uh, Nittany Lions talk now. And there's plenty of it these days based on what has happened in the last few uh, and team facilities. And we have a lot to discuss right now with Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallen and Fellas, we just broke down the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and and they're bringing a bit of their own baggage. Uh, Offense is a big question for them right now. And we know that is the centerpiece topic for us with this Penn State squad. So before we get into the uh, matchup and in our scores and players to watch for number 12 Penn State versus six and four Rutgers, uh, practice takeaways. I'll start off by just saying, Daniel, that I heard my feet, my my shoes crunching against the, the turf as I was walking toward the defensive side of the field. I hadn't really noticed that before. And then when I was over by the the defensive portion, I could hear Anthony Poindexter. I could hear Stacey Collins with the linebackers. I could hear Manny Diaz with the linebackers distinctly. And normally it's just a jumble. And you can hear one guy's voice maybe rising above the others. But I could hear the conversations. That's my way of laying it out there and saying this was the most muted practice. I don't want to say it was a depressed practice or a deflated practice. But I can certainly say that I was able to hear a lot more than I normally can at a Nittany Lions practice
2: yeah I, I think the way that i described it in our practice notes on lines 24 7 is uh it was very subdued which is something that when you think about someone with the reputation of james franklin and his energy and how he kind of presents um isn't necessarily something that you would associate uh, with penn state and we've seen them be a little bit more at different times this year like i think after the ohio state loss when we went back to practice before indiana Um, It was a little bit quieter, but that had more of a, you know, business-like feel with with everything coming off that loss. But, you know, this was very subdued. I think part of it does have to do with the absence of Mike Yersich, because when he's out there, you know he's out there. Uh, He's kind of a a very energetic presence, kind of a a nonstop chattering, um, you know, always critiquing something, always critiquing someone, looking for something. Um, And on Wednesday night, it was just, a little bit different. You would, most of the yelling you were hearing was guys being like, okay, we're going here now, we're doing this now, uh, we're moving to this station. Um, And then once they got into more kind of drill work and, you know, passing, you heard James Franklin come over to offer encouragement to the wide receivers and stuff. But, you know, it it seemed very subdued. It seemed very focused. Um, You know, we know that there's a lot of moving parts right now and guys trying to kind of You know figure out how exactly this is going to work on saturday but it was definitely different i think than probably any practice i've really been to uh in my three years on the beat
1: mark you have been to more penn state practice i would venture to guess than maybe anyone in the history of this beat i'm just (laughs) going to put it out there i I, i'm going to put it out there you may because you show up to everything you don't miss a damn thing so i'm going to say that you've been to more practices than anyone how did this one measure up to all the rest
3: (laughs) yeah I agree with what both of you guys are saying. you know the one thing I would say is that by this point of the season, usually they are into such a routine. and I think that's why you you hear the noise and 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 everybody being loose and and uh just you know you you can't hear a pin drop. but when you break that routine and that this is the first time we've seen that that since obviously when the routine was significantly broken, you know, 11 years ago. Um, But when you break that, then I think everybody has to be at a heightened level of attention to understand what's going on. You're taking the offensive coordinator out of the mix here. And I know, Tyler, what you were talking about was the defensive end, but I think most of it was kind of coming from the offensive end. And, And admittedly, I spent my entire time, You know, watching the offense, watching the offensive coaches, seeing who was doing what. And I know we can get into that. But I think, you know, James Franklin is a creature of habit. And that gets passed down to everybody, even to us in the media, because we go into those practices and we see very similar things every single week. And then all of a sudden, that's broken in the middle of a season, well, the end of the season, but, you know, during the season. And I think that's why that was such a unique thing. You're so just used to the structure and everything happening a certain way. And you're such doing this. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see Ty Howell in places that he's he, he hasn't been. I mean, you, you, you see um, Danny O'Brien doing things that he had not been doing. And I think for the players, the coaches, and even the media – you're paying way more attention because you know this is different than every week that we get it just it just broke the routine yeah there's no doubt and and James Franklin knew what he was getting into you
1: know he, he knew that this also meant that they were going to have be a man down on their staff which throws a lot on everybody else's plate he he described early mornings and late nights and uh, he described uh what did he I want to get this right healthy confrontations And healthy conversations. So uh, both of those things happening right now, we've heard a a little bit more about James Franklin's role here. But before we get to that, Daniel was still picking up the pieces trying to follow the uh, trying to follow the trail a little bit uh, about how this went down, why it happened now. And I think what continues to pop up and, and it's kind of been something we addressed on Monday, and we can just pick it up a little bit more here is that they were really not on collaborative terms in that offensive room, because James Franklin has mentioned that buzzword collaboration or collaborative six, seven times in reference to how this week has been different for his offensive room when he already went public and, and kind of describing what you could say at least goes on the fringe of insubordination in terms of how the offensive play call was being laid out over the course of a game versus how it was being prepared within your team facility from Sunday through Friday. Daniel, what do you think about what we're learning, what we're picking up? We're never going to know the full story. There's only two guys that will know how that exact conversation went down. But we're not done with this just yet. And obviously, we're going to follow the process of bringing in the next offensive coordinator. But not quite ready to turn the chapter on Mike Yersich here in Happy Valley.
2: Yeah, I, on Monday, James Franklin, I think it was kind of a almost like a side note when talking about, you know, that first day in the building. You know, first, you know, like 24 hours, I guess. Um, since the firing happened, he's, you know, he said that things had been more collaborative than they had been, but it was kind of a, you know, we had bigger fish to fry, I think that day in terms of, you know, details and things like that. Um, and then it came up again on Wednesday night and there are a couple follow-ups on it. And um, from what James Franklin said, the healthy confrontation, healthy conversations, it sounds like that they've really worked to get everyone on the same page this week and, from what James Franklin has said um, that that is happening. Um, There's still some details that we don't know um, moving forward. James Franklin wouldn't say whether Ty Howell or Jaywon Sider is going to be calling the plays on Saturday. He said that Rob Smith, uh, an offensive analyst, who has been a defensive coordinator at a bunch of different stops? He's going to take over including the including
1: Rutgers. Let's including just at he's, he's been Rutgers defensive coordinator. before I think
2: two different times too. Yeah. Um. And and so he's taking over the vacated headset. Um. And he'll be in the booth. And then Danny O'Brien is, you know, basically I think the de facto quarterbacks coach right now. Um. And we saw some of that in action on on Wednesday night. Um. But I, I think that. It's kind of now behind the scenes, Franklin getting all of these offensive coaches to work together, figuring out how to put um, this team in the best position, figure out what's working. And I think that the one thing that James Franklin is going to be looking for and the one thing that's probably going to happen is that what happens during the week and what gets laid out is what carries over to Saturday.
1: And James Franklin, it's not just the
2: staff he's making an impression upon this week. We've heard from players.
1: I thought Caden Wallace was very candid with us overall during 10 minutes in post-practice on Wednesday evening. He's often very candid with us these days, the fifth-year senior. Uh, But in discussing James Franklin, I I told him, hey, James told us himself that he's been more vocal in the offensive room. Have you noticed that? He said, yeah, we've noticed, and it's a lot of yelling. And I was wondering where he was going to take it. He says it's a positive thing he feels like it's making an impact on players who maybe need to hear these things delivered in that kind of a manner. And it's kind of strange because we talk about Mike Yersich as being a yeller. It's, I'm going to remember Mike Yersich, and, and that's going to be one of the top three traits I'll remember is a guy who yells. And uh, when it comes to James Franklin, that's a shared trait. I mean, players will tell you that's often how he delivers it. But when it's the head coach, the guy who knows everybody in your family, visited your living room, has known you since you were a sophomore in high school in some cases and is the man you're counting on as that de facto father figure here on campus for your your career, when he brings it this late in the season and he gets a little personal maybe in front of the whole offensive room, that's just a different thing. And Caden Wallace didn't go into details, didn't specify any names, but he said that it's driving this offense, and he said that in a very positive manner. Mark, what do you think about what James Franklin is maybe trying to accomplish between the Michigan matchup? And the Rutgers game, and really big picture what he's trying to do with these three remaining matchups on the table. As he knows, there's a lot of discomfort among the Penn State football community right now.
3: Yeah, I'm having trouble reading my chicken scratch, but Caden Wallace said something along the lines of his presence is being felt or something like that about James Franklin, which, you know, when we're at practice, his his presence usually, you do sense that he's there, but I guess what Caden's getting at is that he's kind of going above and beyond And it's not uncommon for us to hear, you know, James Franklin drop F-bombs at practice, or uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it is. I mean, I've heard it plenty of times. Um, I've heard a bunch of the coaches kind of do that sort of thing, and I have absolutely no issue with it. But I think the fact that he's ramping it up a level is just letting everybody know that he cares. I think that's what Caden Walls was getting across, that, you know, he knows it's a difficult time for these guys, but, you know, he's not letting anybody take a step back. I mean, he's he's pressing and, and, and making sure that they're going to give it everything they could possibly give. I think when you decide to make this change in the middle of the season, you know, you better have a game plan with how you're going to attack it. And it seems like aggressiveness is the way that James Franklin's going to do it. But I don't know that that's all entirely different from the way he usually is. And I think Caden kind of got at that a little bit too. Like, yeah, he's usually pretty vocal. Maybe it's just yeah. a little bit more right now. But he is not the same guy on the practice field that he is in, in the, the living room when he was recruiting, nor should he be. I mean, you'd have to be nuts to, 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 be, to, to do that. So, And we also see it with the way he holds players accountable. You know, if guys aren't getting it done, they're not playing. I mean, if coaches aren't getting it done, you know, he makes hard decisions and they're gone. So I think everybody has to realize that this is, a, you know, open your eyes moment. And that, the, that if the head coach is taking it this seriously, everybody else better. Now, how is that received? For a guy like Caden Wallace, I think I don't think it's difficult at all. I mean, he's been around so long, and he's super smart, and you could just tell how savvy he is talking to us. I wonder how the younger players are dealing with it. I wonder how the young quarterbacks are dealing with it. And I tried to ask Franklin about that, and he kind of talked around it a little bit. But, you know, this can't be an easy thing. And I get that he told them before he told us, of course he did. I mean, did we expect him not to do that? But that's why, and I'm kind of hinting at, you know, players to watch here later. But, you know, I think it's going to be real interesting to see how these quarterbacks actually perform, and especially how one quarterback performs, because that to me, everything that James Franklin is doing here, I think so much of it stems from knowing what Drew Aller is all about, and I know I'm going a long way here, but I just think it—it's it, all getting to the point of this whole offense. You, you're gonna have you're gonna need a quarterback moving forward who's able to do some really good things, and it looks like you have the guy. But now you hit this this road bump. How are you going to emerge from it? So I think tough love is one way, but we're not going to know until we see how they play, and that's why I think this Rutgers game. You know Rutgers' uh, very good defense. I know I know the team's bumped up, but I think this is a really nice test to see what this offense is all about coming out of this crazy week.
1: You made a good point that this is a tough week on some of the younger players. You know, Caden Wallace says, I, "I've I've lost big games. I've won big games. You know, I get it." You, you, he he said, "There's no time to grieve because you'll spiral." And he, you know, he, he pretty quickly referenced that 2021 season. He acknowledged that's what happened in that 2021 21 season for that team, yeah. um, and he wants them to respond like they did in 2022. But you know that it's one thing to go in and yell and scream at players and hoot and holler and, and do it on the practice field or in the meeting room or in the film room, but when you come in and say, "Gentlemen," I just fired Mike Yersich, knowing that you've seen Mike's wife, Mike's kids in your facilities, how many times yeah. associated with him, how many times out of the facilities been to his house, had him over, you know, how many times you've seen him in the last three years, did he visit you in your high school? And did he get to know your family in your hometown? And now to realize that that man no longer has access to your facility, you wake up in a hurry and you grow up in a hurry. And there's no one on that roster that should be more impact impacted by this moment then Drew Aller. And that's where the question shifts to now, Daniels. Brian Doan laid it out pretty well on our site. He popped over. I know he does a lot of recruiting coverage for us, but it's a pretty hefty topic. And he wrote a bit of a column at Lions 24-7 about how there's so much riding on James Franklin getting Drew Aller right when it comes to his ability to recruit the next top-tier quarterbacks, when it comes to getting to the college football playoff next year. A lot involved here. And it sounds like a stabilizing force in what could be a really tough moment for the young quarterback is Danny O'Brien. And there's no better man on this beat to discuss that relationship than you, sir.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, I think right in the aftermath of that game on, on Saturday night, Tyler, you, you said that these next two games, we're going to learn so much about Drew Aller. And now that's even more magnified. Like that's even, even bigger in terms of seeing what he's all about. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot riding on Danny O'Brien and, and what, he's able to do with this quarterback room and and with Drew Aller over these next couple of weeks. We saw him uh, when we got into practice and he was, excuse me. He was the only coach with the quarterbacks. When we got there, he had some of the student managers and student assistants there, um, you know, to catch balls and and be landmarks, but he was the one, Um, you know, we'd seen him there with Mike Yersich in the past, but, you know, Danny O'Brien had the, had the big pad on, uh that that mike yersich would use to try to poke the ball out he was putting the guys through the paces um it was pretty uh it was a a new picture i think something that sort of really does drive home uh, what kind of change this is from the in a a concrete way um but at at the end of uh, james franklin's media availability on wednesday uh, he had the he got asked uh, you know what you know why do you have this trust in danny o'brien to put him in this spot because this is a a pretty big spot for reasons that go beyond these last two games of the season. Um, Even though there are, there's so much riding on these two games in terms of postseason, where you're, where you're going to go for your bowl, what that bowl means for your program, et cetera. Um, You know, the things that Brian Doan laid out in that really good piece in terms of attracting top tier talent, showing that this is a place that top tier talent can come and thrive and succeed. And so, you know, Drew Aller needs to put his best foot forward, and Danny O'Brien is going to be a, a big part of that. But you know, Franklin talked about how long he's known Danny O'Brien. You know, their relationship goes back 15 years uh, to when James Franklin was recruiting O'Brien out of North Carolina to go to Maryland. Uh, we know that they had success there in 2010, um, and then they've stayed in touch. And when Danny O'Brien was, you know, done playing in Canada, and then looking to come back after coaching for a year in Canada, James Franklin gave him the the landing spot as an analyst here. So he's someone who knows how James, how James Franklin operates, what he wants to see. And he's really been able to connect with the players you know, going back to July talking to Drew Aller at an NIL event, you know, he said that Danny O'Brien was someone who was really, really important to his development. Um, it sounds like when Mike Yersich would be away recruiting um, that, you know, they, or be away. you know, for whatever reason that Danny O'Brien would be there to work with them. They got very close. Um, and so I, I think that that's going to be really interesting to watch. You know, you know, James Franklin sa- has said some really good things about Danny O'Brien. Um, Mike Yersich said some really good things about him uh, in August at media day. And something that both of those coaches talked about was his work ethic and what he was doing, the hours he was putting in, how he was grinding away at being an analyst and then as a grad assistant uh, to try to get these quarterbacks in the right position. And so when James Franklin talks about guys who are in there late or in their early staying late, you have to think that Danny O'Brien is one of those guys. And it's going to be really interesting to see what that yields uh, when we get to Saturday.
1: Danny O'Brien is 33 years old. That's older than the age that Dion Barnes was when he got promoted to the position coach at defensive line. That's older than Ty Howell was when he was promoted from within to the position coach at tight end. And you just wonder, uh, yeah, could he be in a position where he's in a dress rehearsal right now? And we've already heard James Franklin call him a rock star. And quite frankly, two of the longest, most glowing answers that we've heard from James Franklin this fall in a post-practice media session have been related to Danny O'Brien. So some, some food for thought there as we work our way through what the offensive coordinator hire might mean. There's some internal candidates for all these things too. Um, gentlemen, th- th- let's get into what we actually want to see when when this team plays football on Saturday because, uh, look, the offense has – we don't know what it's going to be. I mean, it, there's a chance that we could see this team really try to re-identify itself and in a significant way uh, under some new leadership and maybe try to, to shake off what they were for the past 10 weeks under Mike Dursich Mark, if, if if from our vantage point in the press box, what would you th- come away thinking they got it right? They did something. They fixed it. If we see this on Saturday,
3: I think if they go back to what worked against Maryland and I'm not going to say that uh, the Michigan defense is anything remotely close to 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 what Maryland had, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think they gave Drew Aller some flexibility and and I think they weren't they were not afraid to set up the run with the pass and he seemed so loose and he just seemed so comfortable and they went away from that against Michigan and it was like kind of run, run, run. And I know they had some success, but, you know, ultimately we've seen with this team that, you know, a a lot of us, including me, thought that this was going to be a team where the ground game was going to be able to set things up for Aller, and it didn't turn out to be that way. I mean, for for whatever reason. You know, was it the play calling? You know, was it the offensive line? Was it the backs? Probably some combination of all of them, in it, as well as what opposing defenses kind of knew what Penn State was going to be all about. But so we figured that out. And you go down to Maryland, and, I mean, Aller has 10 first-down completions. And against Michigan, he has three first-down pass attempts when you take out penalties, obviously. But still, I mean, and only one first-down completion. And I just think – I keep going back to Aller because I think that's what this is all about. And I don't mean that Yursich was fired because of anything Aller did or didn't do. But I just think you're going to need this a, a quarterback. We know. We, we see what the best teams are all about. You need a dynamic quarterback who's able to dictate different things. And it looked like they were going in that direction, and that's why when I hear that the the game plan wasn't carried out, it's like, what could that what could that mean? And James will never tell specifically, but I think you just look at the difference between a couple of these games, and, and that's what it is to me. So it's just, again, I think the biggest thing for this offense is for the quarterback, you know, and we know it's going to be Drew Aller, but I just want to say for the quarterback to look more comfortable than he's looked in the in, in the biggest games this season. Because, frankly, against Ohio State and Michigan, he just didn't look like he was quite right. And I think putting him in that spot and, and making him feel better, I think that's a real key. And again, that would be whether it was Aller or Pibula or whoever was starting. I just think you need that quarterback to be comfortable because for this program to be where it wants to be moving forward, you're going to need that kid to play at a certain level.
1: Yeah, stack up some some easier completions in early in this game as James Franklin was was dying for it. Sounded like uh, last Saturday night in the post game press conference, and uh, maybe scheme up some opportunities to get some guys open in, in short routes, intermediate routes where he can start carving them up. Remember how impressive that he was dicing teams up early this season, uh, especially in that short to intermediate range. And I, I think w- with, for me, it's K-Tron Allen week, baby. It, it's his turn in the starting rotation. So that means we're probably getting two offensive series, although that was under the last offensive coordinator. So I don't know what the rotation <laughs> might look like. I put I put my trust when I see running backs on the field that J-1 Slater is making that determination. So if they stick with that, and, and, and let's say K-Tron Allen is the guy out there for the first two series of this game, I want them, this offensive staff, I want them to treat k Allen like their best player on the field. And I want them to give him a shot. And I know that the counter argument is that, well, if they're low in the box and they're daring Drew to throw, you can't Yeah, give him a shot. Give him a chance to go knock some Rutgers defenders on their butts, plow forward and set a tone for yourself because he has not had that opportunity when it has mattered most. Now, it may not matter most to a lot of people. The game in a sleepy showcase setting uh, at at noon uh, on a a Saturday here in late mid-November but it matters a lot for where this team is for getting the pulse of where Penn state is in this offense. And in my mind, Ktron Allen for everyone who wants to call him a tone setter. And I know that that J-Wan thinks of him in that way, let him do that. Let him try to do that. Take the pressure off your young quarterback. Don't make him be the spotlight guy early. Th- that's just my opinion. And, and I think that's a nice way to ease your way into this game a little bit offensively. Daniel, where do you stand? What do you want to see from this game? And what do you think Penn state needs to put out there?
2: I want to see some creativity that doesn't involve trick plays. I, I want to see them trying to get guys into space, give guys the ball with the, with the chance to make something happen. I don't know if that's some sort of you know, maybe a running back screen here or there. I, w- I want to see something that you know, you're getting Nick Singleton to the edge where there's only one guy to beat, or if he makes one, or if he makes one guy miss, there's only a safety there. Um, I, like I want to see something where you're putting these guys in positions to you know, let them use their athletic traits to make something happen. You look at Keandre Lambert Smith and some of the things that we've seen him do with the ball in his hands over his career. You think about some of the touchdown catches that Theo Johnson has had this year, where it's kind of you, you're letting him go up and make a play. Similar thing for Tyler Warren. Now I want to, like I think that this is the type of thing where I think after a coaching change, I think a good strategy is to make things about the players and not about the plays anymore. Um, so, you know, doing things to kind of let guys be instinctual, um, let them just maybe have one read and go. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say simplify things because I'm not really sure. Oh, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think that yes, for some of those wide receivers, (laughs) uh, I, I think things needed to be simplified a little bit. Um, but you know, just let these guys be instinctual, you know, let them go out there and just kind of cut it loose a little bit. Um, I think that that's kind of what I come back to because it seemed like even when under Mike Yersich that even when they were trying to do these things, like this trick plays, it was just kind of, it was forcing it a little too much, you know, instead of just maybe throwing a deep post to Tyler Warren or throwing a downfield pass to someone, you have to throw it to Keandre Lambert Smith first, and then he throws it. Um, you know, you have to, motion drew aller out you know have katron allen throw it back to him you know i think that simplifying things a little bit kind of making it about these players not the plays um i think that that's something that can help penn state especially in a game like this where you're going to have the clear talent advantage against a team like Rutgers.
1: we'll be right back on the Lions 24 7 podcast
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check
1: All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the defense as well, uh, because last time we saw them in a spot like this, it wasn't pretty. You know, We were talking about Indiana as a team that didn't bring much firepower to the field offensively, a quarterback that we didn't think was going to do much damage, and that got a little dicey, didn't it? It was a tight game in the fourth quarter, and, and, and they had those three splash touchdowns, 25-plus-yard touchdowns, did the Hoosiers. Uh, the defense brought it. You can't say they were necessarily elite from start to finish. The floodgates opened with that Michigan ground game as the, the second half wore on, but – the offense left them flailing in the wind for the second time in, in, in a marquee matchup. So, Mark, what do you think about the defense? Devon Ellis was about as impassioned as as, as Caden Wallace was about where this team is and kind of the, the, the emotional moment that they are facing. He said it was a heartbreaking loss to Michigan. He acknowledged that. And so with that, do these guys show up and use that and, and, and get feet off it, or do they carry it as an albatross in this matchup? And that is a big question for me. With this defense and what we might get,
3: yeah, I'll go back to what I've said. I mean, I think that uh, Indiana game was an outlier. I think that was an an instance where you know they came off a game where they knew they played well enough to win, and the team did not win. And I think they probably learned from that. I was impressed, but by what, by what they were able to do against uh, Maryland the following week, even though uh, Tonga Vailoa threw for a bunch of yards, they really held him in in that entire uh, outfit in check. But I also think. You can't really discuss this without looking at the opponent, right? Yes. I mean, you're looking at a Rutgers team that that didn't score a point uh, at Iowa, and I, we know that Iowa has a good defense, but is it that good? And I think if you look at Rutgers on the road this year, they're averaging less than 13 points per game, and and, and that's against defenses that aren't necessarily, you know in the same kind of league as Penn state's, although Michigan was one of those, if I'm not incorrect. So anyway, I mean, it's still, I just think that this unit, I'm going to take this unit at face value for what it's done in every game, except one this season and understanding the mitigating circumstances and knowing that more than likely with the leadership, with the coordinator you have in Manny Diaz Uh, he's been through tough times, you know, on the field in his life. And I think he's more than prepared to communicate what needs to be communicated. So I look for the Penn State defense to play extremely well in this game. I will be surprised if they don't. And actually, I just I can't see Rutgers scoring enough points to win this game, no matter what the Penn State offense does, unless it turns the ball over six times
1: we could just get that soundbite mark and just play that on like the last six years of this podcast. And it's exactly what we said about this matchup over and over, but just to hammer home your point, I'm with you, by the way, this, this defense deserves the benefit of the doubt. And especially in this matchup, I mean, even if they did bring like a C plus kind of game, he's the, here's the last five big 10 starts for Gavin Wimsatt home away, whatever, Uh, going back, starting with uh, December, uh, October 7th at Wisconsin, 16 of 35 passing, 181 yards, one touchdown, one interception against Michigan state, 13 of 28 passing, 100, 181 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions, a victory at Indiana where this team scored 31 points, five of 12 passing for 39 yards uh, three yards on the ground. Of course, we got to note that he is a dual threat to him. Ohio state, a game that they were leading at halftime. He was 10 of 25 for 129 yards. And then last week against Iowa, seven of 18 for 93 yards. And look, We got the five star former number one quarterback in the country, and some of his stat lines lately have looked similar to Wimsat's. But this is a Penn State defense that it feels like should be in control, even if the offense isn't ready to show up and take the next step, Daniel.
2: Yeah, I I think that you look at Wimsat, and it does nothing he can do with his arm really scares you, I don't think. I am curious to see what he's able to do with his legs given what we saw JJ McCarthy have some success with last week and i think that Kyle Menungai is a pretty solid running back and we saw Michigan poke some holes uh, in in Penn State especially when it came to running at maybe times when Penn State wasn't expecting run and didn't have the didn't necessarily have the personnel package out there that could match up with a with a running game so i'm interested to see what Rutgers is able to take from what Michigan did, but at the same time, you know, Gavin Wimsatt isn't JJ McCarthy, uh, Kyle Mongai is not Blake Corm or Donovan Edwards. Um, so I, I think that in terms of looking at this Penn State defense, I, I also think that that's a unit that is also going to learn from last week. Um, I, I don't expect Manny Diaz to be the type of defensive coordinator whose units make the same mistakes twice. Um, You saw guys like Adisa Isaac, who are normally very solid, get caught out of position once or twice. I don't expect that to happen again from from players like that. So I think that this defense, I mean, they played well enough to win last week. Um, And but I and similar, but unlike after the Ohio State game, I I don't think it'll carry over. I think that they kind of learned their lesson in terms of, um, you know, playing well enough to win, losing letting that affect you the next week. I I don't think they'll let that happen again, given that experience. And I think that they'll be in position to do to Rutgers what Penn State defenses have historically done to Rutgers since they joined the Big Ten.
1: Chop Robinson returned to game action against Michigan. Flashed early on, was very effective until Michigan decided to say, you know what, we're done trying to pass the football. And then that, that neutralized a little bit of what Chop Robinson brings to this defense. And by the way, I think if Kirk Sciarocca had his way with this Rutgers, uh, Rutgers offense and what Mononga has been, if he is healthy enough to go in this game, I know there's a little bit of question about his status, uh, but they might come out and run the football 32 consecutive times to open the game because that that, that we've seen Kirk Shiraka take that approach in this matchup as a Penn State offensive coordinator. Everyone remembers when he got super conservative in an ugly game, put Will Levis uh, in as a battering ram. And I think he ran Will Levis about 20 times over the course of that matchup on a windy day in Piscataway back in 2020 to get to the finish line. So I expect him to go super run heavy, but I think this run defense has responded. And even though it got away from them a bit at Michigan, and those stats look more skewed than I think they were over the course of 60 minutes of football, I think they'll be ready because this offensive front that Rutgers brings pales in comparison to what Michigan's able to do in in creating those pathways for their running backs downfield. There are some injuries to get to, uh, aside from the Chop Robinson return, which was good news. Did not see Amin Vanover get back involved defensively. He's missed three consecutive games now at the defensive end spot since exiting early against Ohio State back on October 21st. So we'll keep tabs on him. He's a guy that's been active on the practice field during our window of viewing each of the last few weeks. He's been out there for pregame warmups. He was actually not listed as out or questionable last week, but he still was not out there with the defense. So he's been a second teamer when available. He's missed five games on the season. We'll see if he can get some action late. Uh, And then Harrison Wallace, uh, in a rare confirmation from James Franklin before a game, uh, saying Wallace will not play against Rutgers. He didn't go beyond that. uh, So there's room that maybe he's back on the field uh, for the regular season finale. It may be more likely that he could return for a postseason matchup, given that's still another five, six weeks away. I will note that we did spot Harrison Wallace down on the field in pregame warm-ups last Saturday. Not involved in street clothes, but no longer using a sling. We don't know how long he was using one, but that's the last time we had seen him under our eye uh, after that injury against Indiana. He was had a sling on his right arm. So I think we are all caught up with the injuries. Penn State's a relatively healthy squad this time of the year. The enviable position in terms of health. So Senior day, uh, as James Franklin said, it's a little strange now because of the COVID eligibility in play. There's not a black and white situation where you know who's reached the finish line and who hasn't. For instance, Caden Wallace, who's a four-year starter for this team, a red shirt uh, senior. He said on Wednesday night he does not feel like he has made up his mind on 2024 yet, and obviously a major boost because you, I don't think who fashion is going to surprise the world again and stick around at left tackle. So, um, to, to get Caden Wallace back for a sixth year. You, you wouldn't sneeze at that, uh, sneeze at that opportunity. Um, Daniel, whatever we get out of senior day, we're not sure, but you did a nice job tracking down some some transfers that have reached the end of their college careers. Um, we're expecting a list from Penn State for who's going to walk. Again, don't read into whom, who you see walking out there in every instance because a lot of those guys could elect to come back next year or maybe try to transfer and chase another year of eligibility somewhere else. Daniel, what you heard from Johnny Dixon, Hunter Norzad, Alex Falcons. They started their careers careers elsewhere at different levels of football. They finished them here. They've all been key contributors here this year. And in the case of Dixon and Norzad, multiple years. What did you pick up from those conversations this week?
2: It was interesting to, to talk to those guys. We had Dixon and Norzad on Zoom on Tuesday, and Falcons was available after practice on Wednesday. And I thought that Johnny Dixon and Alex Falcons both talked about Something that was pretty interesting in, in terms of the the standard that they were held to at Penn State. And you're talking about guys who come from two very different backgrounds. You know, Alex Falcons talked about coming from the Ivy League, and he qualified it by saying that, yeah, at Columbia, they took football very seriously, that they were out there trying to win games and stuff. But it's not the Big Ten. You know, The level of competition isn't the same. The quality of coaching isn't the same. And therefore, the the overall mindset isn't necessarily the same. And so he feels that coming here and being thrust into that, you know, he said it was from the jump that in the spring, he felt like that he was in a very, very competitive environment. We heard about the competition between him and Sanders to Haydack going down to the last week with how close it was before the season started. And Alex Hopkins came here. He was a 66% field goal kicker. I, I think when you saw that in the transfer portal, an Ivy Leaguer 66%, you're kind of like, oh, okay, sure. You know, depth, depth piece. Um, but he's up to 82.4% this year. And he credited being in this type of environment with this, that he had to be consistent every day. And he also talked a little bit about his own maturity. Um, and c- being consistent, not only on the practice field, but in other facets of his life. And he thinks that that's something that has really helped him find success. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, and then on the other side of it, you have Johnny Dixon, you know, who was a, a three star recruit in Florida, who was recruited by Penn state, uh, in the process, he goes to South Carolina plays in the sec and elects to transfer after, after the 2020 season, comes to Penn State, and he said that it was completely different, that the standard that he was held to at Penn State was much different than the one at South Carolina. Uh, He kind of talked about how the way that people carried themselves in the building was also very different. Of course, in South Carolina in 2020, they had a coaching change. That was the end of of the Will Muschamp era there. Uh, So he had to deal with a little bit of upheaval, Um, and a little bit of instability that can probably affect that. But he said that coming to Penn State, that he feels like that he was prepared to be a pro um, and that it forced him to mature a lot, not only on the field, but off the field as well. Uh, I thought that it was just very interesting to hear someone from Columbia, someone from South Carolina, uh, a kicker, a defensive back, uh saying essentially the the same thing in terms of what they got out of this experience uh and then hunter norzad talked about just the energy that's around the program not only from the people in the building um but from the the fan base and everyone else who is who is surrounding it uh all three guys said that when they are in the portal that they wanted to be part of a team that was going to contend for contend for a national championship. They wanted to play on the biggest stage possible. And that's why they picked Penn State. And they feel that like, even though Penn State fell short of some of those goals that they had and fell short of that ultimate prize, they do feel like that they were given the opportunities that they wanted when they got here.
1: And these are good examples of different kinds of prospects, too. You've got the one-and-done situation with Alex Falcons where you're just looking for a solution, and, and we thought it was going to be a depth piece, like, depth piece, like you said, but there he is as your primary kicker. Uh, you've got Johnny Dixon, who you're trying to get a developmental prospect who has a little bit of experience on the upswing. Um, they've done that. He is really improved year by year by year. Terry Smith has raved about him. He's going to go in the NFL draft much higher than I think what people really considered a, a year or two ago about Johnny Dixon and his potential. And then Hunter Norzad is a classic example of a guy who kind of hit his ceiling or not his ceiling, but hit the ceiling at the Ivy League level. You know, he's an all Ivy League player at the tackle position there. He comes here. He does enough to prove that he earns a rotational job in year one at the guard spot. Landon Tangwall gets hurt last season. He steps up. He's your starting left guard all the way through the Rose Bowl. Then you lose a second round pick to the NFL draft, and he's your next man up at center. And while he has not duplicated Ju- Juice Scruggs to a T, I think the people in that room. And across that facility have repeatedly told us that he is extremely accountable, intelligent, one of the more, more impressively brute force strong players on this team, and he has been more than enough, I think, in terms of what you're looking for and what you need uh, for a pickup. Now, would you love to bring in a player who's gonna be a first team, all Big 10 caliber offensive lineman? Sure, but those are few and far between. I think these all checked off different boxes for players that they needed at different times, and these are three good examples of successes uh, for both parties you'd imagine mark one other name i wanted to get to on, on senior day before we talk players to watch and finish with our predictions is keaton ellis he is one of those who's definitely done he used his covid eligibility last year and this is an interesting kind of case study in making that decision because when we spoke with him in pasadena last year and he told us that he hadn't reached the decision but he was leaning towards staying in 2023 he talked about his development at safety came in as a cornerback burned red shirt then his first year at safety, I believe he was dealing with some injury issues. And, and ultimately, he surfaces as a starter last year, and he wants to build off that. Loves what Anthony Poindexter does, but he knows it's a competitive room, and he knows that K.J. Winston's a special player. It is now very much a two-man show at safety. It's K.J. Winston, Jalen Reed, a little bit of work for the other guys, and Zaki Wheatley and Keaton Ellis. It was a, a more of a foursome back in early September. And in the most in the latest matchup, one of the biggest of Keaton's else, Ellis's career here against Michigan – he did not get on the field for a defensive snap, according to Pro Football Focus. So, Mark, he is a team captain. He is a special teams contributor. That doesn't change. But what do you make of this career arc for the local kid from State College High, who we were on the sideline with James Franklin one night, watching him return a kickoff for a touchdown, and it was just such an exciting thing to think about him just making the quick trip over to Beaver Stadium. He's played a bunch of football, but it's been a really interesting finish to this career.
3: Yeah, I mean it can't be easy, but I mean that I think there was a reason he was named a captain, you know, before the season is because they they obviously knew that, you know, there was a a, a chance that he might not start, uh but I think they wanted somebody in that position who could show that you can still be a leader if even if you know, you're you you you're not getting the opportunities you got the previous year. I mean, Tyler Elsden is kind of a similar type player, even though he saw more snaps last week. He's not a captain, but, you know, a guy who started last year and saw his role uh, significantly reduced, but still in every media opportunity that we've seen either of these guys they have really come across as team leaders, I don't know that they're okay with it. I don't know that they would tell us if they're not okay with it. But from everything we could gather, you know, they've been nothing but the consummate team players. And I wouldn't expect anything else. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate enough uh, on a personal level. Grace, my daughter, went to school with Keaton. And, uh, excuse me, I'm – Battling a cold here. Uh, but I know, up. We know you love yeah. Keaton. We know you love Keaton. We've no, no. Got a few more games left, Mark. I was trying to make it through this entire podcast without having to to go to a coughing conniption. But the Ellis family, really, we've known them, you know, forever as well. And anybody who knows them knows what they're all about. So, yeah, expect nothing different from Keaton. You know, he's one of those guys that I'll be applauding for. I'll, I'll, I'm will i breaking uh, press box protocol. I'll be applauding for, for Keaton Ellis when he's announced on senior day. I don't know what his future holds. Honest to goodness, just a genuine assessment. I don't know that coming back hurt him in terms of what his football future may be. I'm just not sure what it is. I do know this. I do know that whatever Keaton Ellis decides to do when his football career is over, whether that's in two months or whether that's in five years – he is going to be extremely, extremely successful. And we know that from back when we had the opportunity to interview him after those games back at State High, just how well he kind of handled himself because he committed kind of early and a lot of things were going on at Penn State and he just stayed committed and just another one of those guys who was just kind of even Stephen. But when you talk about strong leadership, that's what strong leadership looks like. You're just not a leader during the good times. You're a leader when... Uh, things aren't necessarily going well for for the team or for you personally. So I also think it's been cool that he's still been able to make a significant impact on special teams. Uh, but listen, you're dealing with a coach like Anthony Poindexter. He knows what safety talent is all about. I think everybody sees what K.J. Winston is doing, and it's hard to argue with what's gone on there. So tough to see for Keaton Ellis in certain ways. But knowing what his future is going to be all about, I think it's just, you know, he's going to be fine in life. And if he gets an opportunity in football, great. Uh, if not, like I said, everything's going to go just just just, just well for him.
1: And again, uh, he's he was the first member of that 2019 recruiting class to commit uh, way back when. Uh, but there's other guys who took a red shirt on like him their first year on campus back in 2019, which means although they have that red shirt senior designation right now, a guy like Devon Ellis, Hakeem Beeman, uh, Smith Vilbert, who's missed this season with an injury. Uh, they have that ability. Daquan Hardy is another name that that, that fits that bill. Uh, there's Keandre always three Lambert guys, Smith, I think. He in the 2020 class and, and burns his red shirt his freshman year. He looks like a senior when you look at the roster, but technically he still has uh, that eligibility. So, again, there's going to be some of you who are watching, uh, following along in Beaver Stadium and seeing all these players run out of the tunnel and with the roses and then their family, and, and you're going to say, well, okay, are they done? Maybe, uh, just, just just stay tuned. We'll, we'll give you the latest alliance 24/7 when we get our answers in the next weeks and months. As, as this roster is going to have a lot of different changes, but we'll see if there are some surprises that stick around that could give them a boost. Let's get into our Tyler, players to our one quick watch. thing by yeah, my math. I, th-
3: I think the only guys, the only scholarship guys who are definitely at the end of the road are Keaton Ellis, uh, Johnny Dixon, and Norzad. I mean, I think everybody else okay. of the scholarship guys who. Oh, Falcons. Oh, that's right. Falcons is, but he's not a scholarship guy. Yeah. So I, and, and Riley uh, Thompson,
1: we're unsure about. There, there's, I mean, I'm just going to put it out, but we, our understanding is that he, that that they're just working on it. And we're going to leave it at that. We're just not sure where he's
3: a guy that had an international process. And so it's a little bit murkier. But it's crazy looking down at this list of guys who still, I mean, Theo, uh, again, you mentioned Olu. Not that, not that we would imagine Olu coming back. I mean, it's just crazy. Curtis Jacobs. I mean, all these guys have the, and again, we're not suggesting they are, uh, but you know, you threw it out there with Caden Wallace that he's not closed the door on that. So, Salim Wormley, and while
1: we're talking offensive line, Salim Wormley has got a multi year starter at guard for you. That does he feel like there's there's reason for him to come back? Does the staff I mean, I don't think the staff is gonna push away any starting caliber offensive lineman in this room right now, especially as they work their way past this season. So some stuff to, to work on, and we'll keep tabs on the roster. But on this Saturday, let's talk about particular players to watch. And we'll go with you, Daniel, to begin. I know in the rundown I had Mark taking it, but we haven't heard from you in a little bit on this show. So what, what, in terms of players to watch, where do you land with Penn State versus Rutgers?
2: Yeah, I, I think I'm going to look at the – I'm going to go to the defensive side of the ball. I know that we've talked about the offense pretty ad nauseum here, and I think that – a lot of those guys you got either of you can take them or it's kind of implied, um, that, that they're going to be players to watch. Um, but I'm going to look at Abdul Carter, uh, at the linebacker spot. It seems like these past two weeks, uh, he's flashed a little bit more playing faster, playing with a little bit more violence. We saw him force that fumble against Michigan, uh, that Penn state unfortunately couldn't fall on. And so I, you know, I'm curious to see, is, is he someone that is closing, um, this season, really strong, like we saw him do a year ago. Um, I mean, you've you laid out the stats uh, on on Lions twenty four seven in terms of how many snaps he's played, his production, and how that compares to someone like Kobe King uh, in terms of snaps and production. And so, I, I think that there's been a lot made about um, you know looking at guys on offense and a perceived lack of production there. I think that when you look at the defense, that even just based on the eye test that Abdul Carter is someone who just hasn't really flashed in the same way that he did a year ago. Um, even early in last season, early in his freshman year when he wasn't getting consistent playing time. So I I think that this is going to be a game that Rutgers is, I assume is going to try to be physical. It's going to be a ground game. Um, it might be a little bit, you know, Kirk Schrocker really might run it 32 times to start the game, um, and I think that that's where someone like Abdul Carter uh, has the opportunity to show up, um, kind of remind people who he is, what he's about, um, and close the season on a, on, a, on a high note.
1: I'll mention the numbers because because you had referenced them there and, and describing what was going on, and because and Kobe King's success against Michigan and he was used a lot more as you'd anticipate with a three linebackers set against that run defense or that run offense. Um, you know, I was kind of curious on on how his role has developed, and because he seems like he's very productive. He had nine tackles last week on 272 snaps this season. Kobe King has 39 tackles on 459 snaps this season. Abdul Carter has 38 tackles. Abdul Carter on 459 snaps has three tackles for loss. Kobe King on 272 snaps has four and a half tackles for loss. And I think that's the mystery here is there's so much work that's not being done behind the line of scrimmage by Abdul Carter. That was such an explosive asset for a defense that has been very good, very reliable, but there are moments where maybe it's lacking the explosive momentum swinging play. Uh, like the kind that Curtis Jacobs delivered momentarily on the road at Ohio State that was ultimately wiped off the board. But Abdul Carter last year as a freshman goes 10 and a half tackles for loss, six and a half sacks. And here he is right now, 10 games in, uh, three tackles for loss, two of those being sacks. But to your point, I think he's strung together, stacked together the the, the kind of the best football, best 120 minutes he's put out there so far uh, in 2023. So I, I was actually going to pick him so I'm, you, you picked him and, and so a tip of the cap to you I think it's a great choice because if you get signs of, of, of Abdul Carter kind of regaining who he is and who he needs to be for this defense especially going into his junior season that's going to be much different than if you kind of see him just trying to find that for the remaining few games and then it's more of a question during the offseason than feeling like you got answers in November or, or December here Mark what player are you picking?
3: Yeah, I mean, it would be too easy to say Drew Aller because I've talked too much about him already uh, today. But I'm going to go with Dante Cephas and Caden Saunders. And the reason why, because I think if Drew Aller is playing at a certain comfort level, he's not going to be zeroed in on uh, Keandre Lambert-Smith and his tight ends. I mean, that's one of the things that I really like that we saw in that Maryland game is that he was spreading the ball around. And I think if he reaches a certain comfort level, if if he starts hitting those uh, other receivers, for lack of a better way of putting it, I think that's going to be a good sign for where his, his his head kind of is. So I am looking at at those two guys, uh, not necessarily to put up to put up monster numbers, but just to have decent games where you don't have Kyandre Lambert Smith with eight catches and the tight ends with eight catches, and then nobody else with more than one. Maybe each of those guys putting up three or four catches.
1: Yeah, you talk about someone who could, could you know, use a bounce-back game, DeAndre Lambert-Smith. A lot of NFL scouts were watching that game. He had one catch for six yards, didn't get a first down off that catch against Michigan, and that was that for
3: Penn State's It'll number bring one. bring it White against receiver. Rutgers, though. You know that. I mean, it's going to be –
1: well, I'll tell you what, Dante Cephas, uh, you know, he's a guy that, that six catches, two touchdowns against Maryland. It's been two catches or less against everybody else. Right. And Caden Saunders, just because James Franklin discussed him a bit after practice when he was asked, um, played the most extended run of, of any point in his career last Saturday against Michigan. They announced him as a starter. They won with two tight ends rather than going with a slot receiver. But he did play like kind of that starter's minutes that we saw going to, to, to Liam Clifford. Back in September, that's now been allocated to Caden Saunders. We'll see if that continues and if he can make the most of it. A guy that came to campus, what, uh, less than two years ago, January of 2021, as a top 100 overall prospect. Can he find a spark here? Sounds like he's been putting the work in behind the scenes. Uh, We'll find out. And Drew Aller, you're right, Mark. If he's extending the football to other guys, that's a great sign. I'll go with Nick Singleton because we've all had our go-around with picking Nick for this one. Um, Basically, exactly mirroring what Daniel said it is time to figure out if if you're going to shake this thing off and, and 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 regain who you you know the, what the projection was and who you believe you can be and then the production is that going to be found here in 2023 or is it going to be hanging over your head for all of this offseason and everyone's not going to have any kind of you know kind of uh, feel like there was a pivot point because if Nick Singleton has three more games that look like the last three he didn't he didn't run for even 10 yards in, in any of the last three games so if that's more the same down the stretch I mean, it's hard not to qualify this as an epic sophomore slump and really wonder what the, what the answer is as a junior. What does it look like for Nick Singleton? Why I'm pointing to it here? Well, the offensive coordinator got the boot. And Nick Singleton w- w- is probably, if you point to the one thing that hasn't looked how you expected it to in this offense, it's that Nick Singleton hasn't da- been dashing by defenders on a weekly basis. And whether that's a personal thing for Nick, and you can look at moments where he's clearly missed some holes, or whether that's a scheme thing, and, and it's a play calling thing, Ktr Allen, as I said, I think he needs to be the offensive vocal point in this particular case. But Nick Singleton got to regain that confidence, and what better way to do that than his guy J1 Sider? No one believes in him more than Jaywan. and I don't think. And I think that that trust is shared between those two. He's involved with that play calling right now, and if anyone's going to set up his running backs to succeed, it's going to be Jwan Sider in this scenario. So I feel like if it doesn't happen now. In this pocket of time between now and next Friday when they're going to be on the, a big stage against uh, the Michigan State, that's not a big deal. What's a big deal is that they're in Detroit, and it's Black Friday, and it's on NBC. Everyone's sitting at home drinking beers, feeling full, looking for something to watch, and a lot of eyeballs are going to be on Penn State football. So Nick Singleton, guess what? If you go have a couple big runs in that game, people are going to forget about what you did nationally. They're going to say, oh, Nick Singleton, that guy's got wheels. And here we're going to say, okay, he found something late in the season, and we're going to go into the bowl uh, conversation, saying, can Nick Singleton continue? Can he pick up where he left off at the end of the regular season? The other counterpoint of that is, if it doesn't happen, we're going to talk all December and say, you know, it, what's up with Nick Singleton? Is he ever? Is it going to happen on the bowl game? It, it's now or never? I just think it's really important for him to find a way, and this offensive staff to at least try to find a way, give their best shot for Nick Singleton to generate some positive momentum here down the stretch I don't need 180 yard rushing games but I think you need this guy to find his way and start stringing together some good moments because they've been really few and far between this year and just been startling based on what we've know about Nick what everyone has said about Nick going into the year and what we discussed as our expectations that uh, so I'm going Nick in this game let's go prediction time uh Mark we'll begin with you for this one
3: Well, my bold prediction is Nick Singleton rushing for over 100 yards. So thank you for destroying that for me. But no, for for all the reasons Tyler just said, Nick Singleton will rush for 100 yards or more for the first time this season. But I think, you know, I I mentioned earlier that, you know, I think Penn State wins this game no matter how the offense plays. But I think the offense is going to come out and play extremely well. And here's why, you know, in in picking Jaywan Sider, and Ty Howell as your interim co-offensive coordinators, you know, James Franklin, to me, got two glue guys, two guys who have been, you know, if you look at Ty Howell, what he was able to do with that team that went through the tremendous, you know, difficult, tremendously difficult transition uh, back at the end of his career. And he was one of the, the people who held all that together. And if you go back and look at Jaywan Sider's entire career as a player, as a coach, wherever he's been, he's been somebody who's brought people together. He's been a great recruiter. The players have loved him. I think both of these guys have that sort of oomph within the program, and I think everybody is going to rally around them. And I think there's a level of respect for what both of those guys kind of bring to the table. So I think Penn State's going to come out, play extremely well offensively, and actually do some things against Rutgers that people haven't done. I'm picking it 42-10, to 10, a big number, I know. But I'm gambling that these people are going to rally, that Penn State, the players, everybody else is going to rally around the two uh, interim offensive coordinators, and Danny O'Brien as well. But I think more so, I just – I think highly of of all of their assistant coaches. But, you know, these two guys and Terry Smith are the, are the guys who I've gotten – you get to know through the years, and you just have a feel for what they're all about and what they mean to that team. And that's not a knock on anybody else. I mean, Manny Diaz has only been here a couple of years. Some of the other guys haven't been here quite so long. But I know what these guys are all about. And I think they are going to bring it all out of this offense this week.
1: Start with some optimism on the offensive front there from Mark. Daniel, where do you go with your prediction?
2: I think that it I don't think it's ever going to be truly in danger on Saturday, but I think that there's going to be a a little bit of anxiety in the Beaver Stadium crowd through the first half. Um, I think Rutgers historically has kept things close with Penn State in the early going. So for my bold prediction, I I think it's going to be a 10-3 game with the Scarlet Knights leading uh, in the first half before Penn State uh, ties it up at 10-10 at the half. Uh, But then I think after the break, I think that talent is going to take over. I think that Penn State is going to do Uh, what it's always done the Rutgers since the Scarlet Knights joined the big 10 and win 30 to 10. um, I think that we're going to see this Penn State essentially just out talent um, Rutgers. I think that especially on the offensive side of the ball, um, once they get comfortable, once they get going, I think that you're just going to see guys being instinctual, making plays, um, and, and just kind of putting it to the Scarlet Knights uh, in that second half. So I, th- I think that the Penn State defense, I don't think there's going to be any sort of repeat of what we saw against Indiana coming off a loss. Um, and I think that they're going to be able to, to hold Rutgers in check uh, enough to pull away for a very comfortable win. Bold prediction from you or did I miss that along the way? bold prediction is 10-10 tie at halftime oh that's
1: okay that is i mean if it, the 10-3 deficit late in the first half alone <laughs> is, is going to be have giving people heart palpitations and i mean but you're right that has been this this kind of series for this team it's a uh, 2021 in beaver stadium 7-0 penn state at halftime 2019 in beaver stadium 7-3 penn state at halftime that was an 11-win penn state team in 2019 14 to 6 Penn State at halftime in 2017. That was an 11 win Penn State team. And those Rutgers teams were not as good or as ready for the fight as this one appears to be, at least on the defensive side of the football. Um, ultimately, I, I'm, I'm on the exact same score as Daniel, 30 to 10. I swear we didn't see each other's scores. We, we sent him the mark every week, but we landed on the same score there, 30 to 10, Penn State. Um, but I do think that through 30 minutes of football, there's going to be. A relatively low margin, maybe a one-score margin, maybe 10, 11 points, but enough to make people feel a bit uneasy about where the things are heading. Maybe it is a tie game, like Daniel said, but regardless, the second half is going to be the second half like we've seen over and over and over again against this Rutgers team. Penn State's going to put up enough points here to gain a two-possession lead, three-possession lead, and force Penn State to throw the football. It's not going to turn turn out well for Rutgers, I should say, when, when Rutgers has to throw the football. There's going to be turnovers. There's going to be a lot of incomplete passes. That's just where that Scarlet Knights pass attack is right now, and it's not going to find itself on this particular Saturday. So I think it's going to be a rough day for Gavin Wimsatt. I think he's going to go six straight Big Ten matchups under 50% completion rating. And then looking at individual stars, that's where I go with my uh, bold prediction here. Uh, Adiza Isaac keeps up his hot streak, gets a couple more sacks. That pushes him to 8.5 on the season, well within striking distance of becoming the first guy in about a decade to go for double-digit sacks on a season. And I think one of those sacks results in a fumble that sets up Penn State with a short field, in which they could use these days, and they get a touchdown out of it. Cleaner play from Drew Aller, uh, I think a little more momentum there. And like I said, ultimately, the ground game proves, with K. Tron Allen being the guy that at the forefront of it, to be the difference in the second half as they pull away. Um, so we've all got Penn State improving to nine and or 10 and one on the season. And then we'll finish up Black Friday uh, night against Michigan State out in Detroit. Guys, we'll see you in the press box on Saturday. I know there's a little basketball coverage between now and then because we are here in November. So check for that at Lions247.com. But be sure to join us on Saturday morning early at the Lions247.com. Uh, we got a lot going uh, on in terms of pregame coverage. Who's going to be available? What are we, what are we watching in terms of a play caller? There's some unanswered questions at this stage in the week still. But on behalf of Mark and Daniel, I'm Tyler Donahue. Thanks, as always, for tuning in or watching or listening to the Lions 24-7 podcast.
0: Should you ever set foot outside of the hotel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime Limited series based on the international bestseller.